Well, in the, in the course of the weekends, uh, we're trying to look together at some of these paragraphs in Romans 8 to find some help for living in our broken world. And I hope that you've found that so in your life as we look at this. We're coming now to look at these uh, verses 31 <coughs> to 39 this morning. To take you to my grandmother's kitchen. My grandmother's dead a long time now, but to take you in your minds to my grandmother's kitchen. It's a little thatch cottage. Uh, you have to stoop down to get in through the front door. There's no key in the door. You just put your hand in through the letterbox and you pull the little cord that's attached to the latch and you go right on in. And uh, after a little hallway, you're right into her, into her kitchen. Ceiling's just, you can reach up and touch it. It's quite stained uh, with the smoke of the range that was on from early in the morning. And... It was usually like a sauna in there, and there were two big black kettles sitting on the range, and uh, the door would often be open to the range, and uh, my grandmother would be pushing in some more logs, which a real treat to us. She used to cut off a, a big wadge of a loaf of bread and give us a toasting fork and we could toast some bread. And then when you look up above the range, there's a mantelpiece, sort of a chocolate brown colour. It's staying too with the smoke coming up off the range. And she's got some very strange ornaments. Little medicine bottles, actually. Little bottles of tablets. Little brown plastic bottles used to be back then. Or, met, or, or glass bottles, actually. And as you look along, actually, every last one of them is still filled to the neck with tablets. There weren't any seals on the bottles in those days, so you just fill it piece of cotton wool then into the neck of it to keep the tablets intact. There's maybe 40 or 50 little brown bottles and every one of them was filled to the brim with the tablets the doctor had given to her for all of her many uh, illnesses and aches and pains. She always, she went to the doctor quite often. <laughs> she a bit of a hobby actually. And she went to the pharmacist afterwards uh, but she never took the medicine. Uh, Serpa things was her answer for everything. She took plenty of that. Um, but tablets, medicine, she just got the bottles of it. Never took it. I have a sneaking suspicion that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you mightn't have a mantelpiece like my grandmother's, but when it comes to the gospel you don't often enough take the lid off the bottle and give yourself a good dose of the gospel. The Christians at Rome that Paul was writing to, they were just like that. They had understood the gospel for a long time, but they weren't taking it. They weren't taking a good dose of it every day into their lives. And Many of them lived with fractures and breakages in their lives and were limping along because they weren't having a daily dose of the gospel. We're just like that. And these sentences at the end of Romans chapter 8 are to help you and me to reach up to the mantelpiece of our lives and take again the medicine of the gospel down off the shelf and open up the bottle and take it. Uh, this, this paragraph really is to help us self-medicate with the gospel. 
You sometimes hear Christians saying after they've heard a, heard a gospel sermon, oh, it was just a gospel sermon we got today. Well, we need to hear the gospel over and over in our lives. Paul has been showing us in Romans chapter 8 <clears throat> that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to assure the believer of their salvation. That's really what Romans 8 is about. If you want a summary of this whole chapter, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to assure the Christian of their salvation. He has been showing Christians that uh, we live in a broken world and that the Holy Spirit has been given to us like a, a deposit guaranteeing that we're going to get the glory, guaranteeing that we're going to be transformed and be glorious like Jesus Christ. He has told us in our last section that the, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He's, he's praying at the place every detail of our lives, not that we'll be hindered, but that we'll be helped on with the gospel. He's reminded us at the end of <coughs> verse uh, 30 that uh, God has begun an unstoppable plan that every Christian has caught up in this wonderful chain reaction of God's great grace. And so then we come to verse 30, uh, 31, where Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? Now, you've got to imagine something at this point. You've got to imagine that you're watching the Apostle Paul he didn't write this letter with his own hands. He had a friend who was writing it down for him. As God the Holy Spirit carried him along and was, was guiding him in his thinking what to write, his friend Tertius was writing this down. We read that later on in the book of Romans. That he was saying what God was getting, getting him to write and Tertius was writing it down. And you've got to imagine at this point that the Apostle Paul gets up off his chair and goes... Wow, did you get all that, Tertius? Did you really get all that I have been telling you? That's really what he means by this phrase. What then shall we say? He is just utterly flabbergasted by what he has told Tertius to write down. Did you get it, Tertius? We're saved by God's grace. And we are sure of heaven. And Paul is just blown away by this. You can almost imagine his jaw dropping. Um, he's just overwhelmed by God's goodness. And what he does now at this section of writing this wonderful letter to the church at Rome is that he lifts the gospel again. And he says to himself, this is such a wonderful treasure. I have to take this again and tell it to the Christians at Rome. So what he does now at the end of this chapter 8 is he lifts the gospel and he twists it round and he looks at it from a different angle so that we can see the gospel all over again. And to help us to take the lid off the bottle of the gospel and to take the medicine of the gospel, what Paul does here is to ask four questions. You'll see them. Just, just glance down the question marks beside them. He asks four questions. In verse 31... He says, who can be against us? In verse 33, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In verse 34, he says, who is to condemn? And in verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So he's asking these four questions so that we'll sit down and we'll think about the gospel. We'll take the lid off the bottle and we'll take it again into our lives. So do that this morning. I want to take these four questions and make them into positive statements so you'll understand what each of these questions are around and that they're the little sheet that you have 
And if you get these four points, you'll understand what this whole paragraph of Romans is about. I've given it this, the title, The Gospel Apply Daily. You know when you get a bottle of tablets, it gives you how to take it. Well, this is the Gospel Apply Daily. So what are we to remember? What does the Gospel mean for the Christian? Well, it means a number of things, four things. It, rem- it means, firstly, that God is for us. Now, you get that. You're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning. You love him. He's your saviour. Here's the big promise. God is for you. Well, look at it says in verse 31. <clears throat> Paul asks the question. He says, if God's for us, who can be against us? And then he says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And what Paul's doing here in these two verses that we're looking at just now, thinking about how God is for us, he is building an argument. He's building up an argument and he's telling every believer, God is for you. The gospel is the most glorious evidence that God is always for you. I meet some Christians sometimes and they say to me, you know, it seems in my life that God is just against me. Paul's saying, no. That can never be the case. Look at verse 32. We'll go there and we'll work backwards actually to verse 31. Just look at it. We should worship and adore God. Paul's saying, look at the cross. What's happening? What's happening? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul's saying, I want you to stop now, and I want you to think about the gospel. I want you to think about the cross of Jesus Christ. What do you see in your mind? Well, what do you see? Well, talk it through to yourself. I see the eternal Son of God and he has taken on a body like mine and he's now hanging on a cross between heaven and earth. He is bloodstained, he is battered, and he is bruised. They've pierced his hands with nails. They've pierced his feet with a nail. He is gasping for breath and he is dying. Paul saying, just think about what he has done in the gospel. You look again and you say, well, what do I see? And you say, I see the Son of God not being spared. You know what it's like, parents? You say there's going to be a punishment for your child for something they've done, something they shouldn't have, and you, you state the punishment. Well, sometimes we spare them the full blow of it, don't we? What did God do when his son was hanging on the cross in our place? What Paul's telling us here, in this verse, he who did not spare his own son, he didn't spare him. What did he do to him? He gave him him up for us all. For us all means every follower of Jesus Christ. He gave him up. Look at the cross. What do we see happening? I see God giving up his son into the hands of wicked men, to do with him as they would. I see God giving up his only dear, precious son, who's been with him for all eternity, to die in my place, to take the punishment that I deserved. And God is not sparing him one single thing. 
That's the gospel. And Paul says that we're to look at that. Delivered up for us all. For you boys and girls who love Jesus Christ, God delivered up his own son to die in your place. Some of you are young Christians. You're in that all. He was delivered up for you so that you wouldn't have to face God's wrath. Some of you have been following Jesus Christ for decades. He was delivered up in your place. In the love and mercy of God. And it's that gospel that we're to take into our lives every day and we're to say with Paul, I know God is for me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We've got this wonderful evidence, God says, of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, can you see how that helps you, Christian, to live in a broken world? You can say, Christian, I am never a victim. I'm never a victim. Because God is for me. And God can take everything that seems to be against me and he can use it for my ultimate good. And Paul's saying to us here, we've got this, this is sure and certain because God did the greater thing for us. He's going to do everything else for our goods. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Maybe that's the only thing that some of you need to remember about this weekend. Those two words, all things. The gospel promises you that you will have everything you need for following Jesus Christ to the end of your life. Maybe some of you actually are not yet followers of Jesus Christ and you're wondering, have I become his follower? The challenges will be too great for me. How will I ever cope? Well, here's God saying to you, he said, I'm telling you this. If you become my follower, you will have everything you need to keep on walking with me right to the gates of heaven. So do you get it, Christian? The gospel is saying to you every day, God is for me. Who can be against me? Who can be against me? The answer? Absolutely nobody. Because God is for you. Um, some of you might know a little bit about Martin, Martin Luther lived 500 years or so ago uh, he was one of the men that God used to bring Europe indeed the world out of darkness of Roman Catholicism into the light of the gospel and from the moment he was converted he was persecuted for his faith uh, the religious authorities hated him uh, on many occasions they, they went after him to seek to take his life he, he went to the city of Worms one day to, to face his enemies and it was reported uh, of Martin Luther as he was entering the city to face his enemies that he was uttering a little phrase under his breath. It was a little Latin phrase, obviously that was the language he knew. And he, and he was saying under his breath, with every step he took into the city, Deus eret pro me. God will be with 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 me. And that's what the gospel is saying to you, Christian. God will be with me. You can take that with you. Whatever happens this week, and you go home, whatever's ahead, you can take this promise. Because of the gospel, you can be sure that God will be with you. He's proved it, hasn't he? 
That brings us secondly. Apply the gospel every day. God will be with you. Here's another thing the gospel reminds us of. There's never a charge that will stick. Well, look at verse 33 now. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge? A charge is something that uh, was spoken about in a court of law. Uh, the little phrase, God's elect, he's talking about true followers of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's saying here, he says that often in the Christian life, the Christian can find themselves, as it were, in the dock. As if they're in a court, and accusations are flying against them. Accusations come against true Christians. Paul says, who, uh, in this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's talking about charges or accusations that come to the Christian, that come into our heart and into our life. If you're a Christian, you, you'll understand this, that, that the devil, <clears throat> he constantly brings accusations into our minds. You've, you've heard these charges, haven't you, in your, in your mind? Felt them in your heart? You couldn't really be a Christian, could you? Ever the devil charge you with that? Couldn't possibly be a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. And he charged you with that. He says, hasn't he said to you, oh, you look so nice and sweet on the outside, but what about the real you underneath the surface? You've got this accusation sometimes in your thoughts. And he said to you, what about all those things you've done in your past? You've got that charge. And you look sort of down at your life and you know it looks, that your life looks to other people just so wonderfully squeaky clean. But when you look down at your life, all you see is the mess. When you hear the charges and the accusations of the devil. It's an interesting thing actually that before you became a Christian, I'm not sure what you've experienced, before I became a Christian, the devil never bothered accusing me about my sins. But as soon as I became a Christian, he kept reminding me over and over and over about my sin. His charges come loud and clear. What about all those things that others don't know about? You couldn't possibly belong to God. And you need to know actually that this morning, if you don't know that already, that the devil always comes with his charges against God's elect. But look what Paul says. Look what Paul says. He says, just immediately after this, it is God who justifies. That basically means there's there's no charge that's going to stick to you that the devil brings. It is God who justifies. You know what it is to be a Christian? When I first became a Christian, as I said to you the other evening, I thought that being a Christian was just having your sins forgiven. It is that. But in case there's someone and you just haven't got this yet, it is much more. A little phrase, it is God who justifies. Now let me explain a little bit about that, what that means, just a little briefly this morning. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ, something happened. 
a great exchange took place. All of your sins, of your thoughts, of your words, of your deeds, of your past, of your present, of your future, were taken and they were laid on Jesus Christ on the cross. And he took the punishment that all of those sins deserve. He took the punishment. That's the first part of the exchange. Jesus got your sins when he was on the cross. And the punishment of God was meted out towards those sins. He died in your place. But something else wonderful happened. Jesus Christ got your sins and my sins. But the gospel also tells us that put to the account of our lives going in the opposite direction was the perfect life of Jesus Christ <coughs> lodged into the bank account of your life. So that when God looks at you, <coughs> he can declare you to go free, that your sins are not only been forgiven, but into your life has been put all of the law keeping and all of the perfect life of Jesus Christ so when God looks on you, he sees you as holy as his own son. It is God who justifies. So, it's not just that your sins have been forgiven. To, the, to your account has been put the holy life of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's saying to us here is, when we feel the accusations of the devil, what are we to do? We're to reach up to the shelf. And take down that wonderful Bible truth of justification and we're to open it up and we are to take the medicine every day of our lives. My sins are forgiven and to the account of my life is the holy life of Jesus Christ. So there's not one charge that can stick against you. Not one. That very thing that you're thinking about now, Christian. And you're saying, well, what about that? The gospel says, it's been dealt with. Your sins are forgiven. And the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ has been put to your account. When you take the gospel in every day, God is for us. There's no charge that can stick. Then thirdly, in verse 34... The Apostle Paul is telling every Christian, you're never a write-off. Well, here's the next question. Remember what Paul is doing here? He's trying to present the gospel from a different angle. He's giving four questions to help us see four wonderful things about the gospel. Here's the next question. Who is to condemn? Well, condemn is even more serious than accusation, isn't it? <clears throat> if I were to condemn some of you this morning, I would say, you're a write-off. You're finished. That's what's meant with this. Uh, someone condemns you, they're saying, look, we'd be better off without you. Just get rid of that person. Have you ever heard that voice of condemnation? Have you ever heard that in your heart, in your mind, uh, when the devil's at work? The devil's got this uncanny knack, actually, of slipping into church services. I'm sure he's busy in Oakfield as well, actually. He comes to our little church and building in, in, in Dremore very often. And, and he sneaks in to the thoughts and thinking of Christians sometimes when they're sitting at the Lord's table and he says to them, what are you doing here? 
comes to a weekend like this. And he whispers to Christians, What's the likes of you doing in a place like this? It comes to prayer meetings, actually. The devil. And he whispers to new Christians, What are you doing going to start to pray with other Christians? It comes to my study virtually every day. And he says to me, Who do you think you're kidding? And the devil comes to condemn over and over. We're going to be singing at the end of uh, a little while from Psalm 130a. It's one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. Plenteous redemption is ever fine with him. And the devil is this sneaking little tactic. So often when God's people are singing words like that, and he comes and he says, Ha, yeah, but what about that sin? And he comes to condemn us. So what's the remedy? We reach up to the shelf and we take down the gospel, we unscrew the top and we pull out the cotton wool and we take the medicine. Look what Paul says. He has said to us, Who is to condemn? And now he tells us the remedy. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. That's the gospel. He's just summarized it in just a few words. Christ Jesus has died. God's appointed, anointed Savior has died in the place of sinners. He has taken the punishment and God has raised him from the dead. Don't you love Sabbath mornings? You do know about Sabbath mornings every time you open the blinds and you open the curtains. God's shedding from heaven to you. I've accepted what my son did on the cross. <coughs> Maybe someone would design for me a, a set of curtains that I could have outwards like that on my curtains in my bedroom. He has risen. I've accepted all that my son did for you. Will you I, I hope when you're swishing back the blinds that in your life you begin to remember that. It's Sabbath day. He's risen. The price has been paid and accepted. He's been raised. When you open the blinds on a Sabbath morning, it's as if God is stretching down from heaven and I say this reverent, and he said, look, here's another receipt. And look what it says. It says, paid in full. Paul, Paul also says about Jesus Christ, not only has he died, not only has he been raised, but he's at the right hand of God. Sitting down at God's right hand. And what is he doing? Well, we're told, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, we've got the Spirit of God praying into place every detail of the will of God for our lives so that we'll be kept on course following Jesus Christ. And now Paul says that Jesus Christ himself now glorified is interceding for us. Now let me explain to you what that means. Well, let me explain to you what it doesn't mean actually for a start. When it tells us in the Bible that Jesus Christ is interceding for us, don't ever imagine that, that Jesus is uh, sitting at his Father's right hand and he's saying, do you see those nice people in Carrick RP Church? <coughs> I know, Father, that they're not walking maybe as they could do, but they're trying their best. Would you be merciful to them? He's not saying that. 
Thank God he's not. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, Father, do you see those men and, li- men and women? And they become broken because of their sin and they're clinging on to the grace of God. And I say to you, Father, remember what I have done for them. They have cried for mercy and deal with them on the basis of the mercy that you've displayed and made and given up for them. He's presenting his own death. Not that somehow we might try better. He's saying, Father, I have died for them. So who is to condemn? Jesus was condemned in our place. So will you rub the gospel in? To change the medical metaphor a little bit. Will you rub it in? Some of you get deep sores and wounds perhaps in your life for the, 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 the condemnation of the devil that comes to you. Will you take the gospel and rub it in? He has died and he has risen and he is interceding. That brings us finally to verses 35 to 39. We'll just have to deal with them one, in one gulp. It's a big tablet, this one. You know those ones that's hard to get down? Well, they're sometimes big whoppers of tablets and they've got a mighty wallop to them. Well, verses 35 to 39 are, they've got a mighty wallop for us, haven't they? Of health and vitality spiritually. Paul's question is in verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, there's the question. Who or what is going to separate you, Christian, from the love of Christ? Remember Paul's purpose, he's he's writing to assure the believers that they're going to get to heaven and they can be sure of that and we can be sure of that because the Spirit of God lives within us. Now what's one of the big problems in our lives? When we go out into a a broken world, it's the difficulties, isn't it? That so often the difficulties of life, they, they sort of like a giant leech to us. And they just seem to drain the, the, the faith and, uh, and desire we have to live from God from us. Well, look what Paul does here. He catalogues in verse 35 the things that we often and will face in our Christian lives. He just lists them. And each of themselves is a, is a little summary term. Tribulation. He says, is that going to knock off the Christian from following Jesus Christ? Is, Our painful situations of life, are they going to so pull us away? No. Distress, he says. What about that? Those those, uh, uh, um, times of our lives that were just overcome with the heartbreaking events. He says, is that going to separate us from God? Or or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, uh, danger, or sword. Things that make us feel vulnerable. You're going to face those, aren't you? And then he spells out in verse 36 uh, something of the reality for many Christians. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Have you found that as a Christian? Maybe you go out to a place of work or to school. And because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, they think, well, let's do even a slaughtering. With their words or their comments. And Paul says in verse 37 that none of these things are going to knock us off course. Look at verse 37. He says, no, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And the picture here of a conqueror is of a mighty warrior. 
standing in the midst of a battlefield, wielding a sword, and there's mayhem going on all around, but he's a sure and mighty victor. So Paul is reminding us here that the gospel assures us that nothing is going to hinder the Christian, but rather it's going to be a help onwards. Look at the confidence of, of the Paul in verse 38. He says, I am sure that neither death nor life all the troubles that are in this world, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, he says, can threaten your spiritual security. Nothing at all. Nothing in this world, not any supernatural power. Absolutely nothing. Do you see how secure you are, Christian? going to make it right to the ends. And we are to let this flood into our souls. And we're to stand in the battlefields of life like a mighty victorious warrior because there's one on our side who is mighty and strong. Let me read you some words from Charles Spurgeon. He was a, a great Baptist preacher in the 1800s. Listen to what he says. He said, I'm afraid that all the grace that I've got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best furniture of my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. See what he said? He says, I, I could put on a, on a, on a penny all the, the things that were of comfort and ease in this life that helped me to be a stronger Christian. But he says, when I think of the troubles I faced, oh, what good I received in the sorrows and pains, he said, the good was incalculable. So what of your life? Maybe you look at it and say, well, it's filled with tribulation and distressing events and I feel so vulnerable. And God says, I'm going to make that the most valuable furniture in your life. Some of you might know the story of uh, uh, Lisa Beamer. Remember uh, her husband, Todd Beamer, was one of the, the, the men who died on one of the 9-11 flights. He was the man who said those very courageous words. Let's roll. Do you remember it? You watched the story maybe on TV or read the book. Let's roll, he said. Let's do something to try and stop this. And they weren't here. Listen to what his wife said in, uh, in her little book. Maybe this will help some of you in your circumstances. She wrote, God knew the terrible choices the terrorists would make and that Todd Beamer would die as a result. He knew my, he knew my children would be left without a father and me without a husband. Yet in his sovereignty and in his perspective on the big picture he knew it was better to allow the events to unfold as they did than redirect Todd's plans to avoid death. I can't see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know he could have stopped it. I don't like how his plan looks from my perspective right now. But knowing that he loves me and can see the world from start to finish. 
It helps me to say, it's okay. That's what these verses are saying to you today, Christian. It's God saying to you, I love you. I love you with an everlasting love. And you can say in your tears, it's okay. It's okay. Let's just bow our heads over. Father in heaven, we're sorry for the mess that this beautiful world is in because of our sin. Thank you that you stamped it with futility. That we would see the horror of the sin and rebellion of man and of ourselves. And that we would see the wonder of the depths of your love for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit to live within every boy or girl and man and woman who loves Jesus Christ. It's the very reason that we believe in your Son. We thank you that his presence in our lives guarantees for us the glory that is going to be revealed into us. We thank you that he's interceding for us now with groans. And they're groans that you know and understand. And that you're hearing and answering his prayers and that all of the events in our lives have been put into place one by one. Not to hinder us but to help us home. Will you help us, Heavenly Father, today and daily, self-medicate with the Gospel? Will you help us to know that we're more loved than we could ever have dreamt of? That you're for us? That there's no charge of the devil against us that will stick because all of the charges stuck to your Son and he paid the penalty in full? Will you help these followers of your son to remember that though the devil would say to them at times that they're a write-off, that they're not. Because you've done all for them that they've needed. And will you help us to remember all the way home to heaven that there's going to be nothing that happens to us that will threaten our eternal security. Oh, we bless you, mighty God, for your gospel. May we drink from it daily and know your everlasting arms of love around about us and underneath us. Father, some of your children here are little infants in the faith and finding the battle difficult and strong. Some perhaps wonder, is it worthwhile following on after Jesus? Oh, will you help them Will you strengthen them? Some, Father, have been a long way in the way in the way of following your Son. And the path has been difficult. The frailty of body and mind almost overwhelming. Will you infuse into them, O oh God, your strength and your grace again? Perhaps some, Father, are weary. The battle too difficult. Revive them, O oh God, and help them to know that they'll be mighty conquerors. Because there's one at their right hand who is a great and mighty warrior 
He was defeated sin and Satan and death. Bless these truths to our lives, Lord, and change us because of your great grace. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let's sing to God.